is in answer to the question of the verse that's before it. It's, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, people talk about church and talk about all these things, but one of the reasons why I hope that you are here this morning is because you want to be prepared for eternity. Amen? Uh, people go to church for all kinds of reasons. I mean, there are some churches that are social clubs. Uh, you go to see your friends and shake hands and and uh, speak to people that you know. Sometimes uh, churches are built on on uh, specific languages and things. And uh, it's uh, funny that uh, they'll have a church. Uh, Brother Newberger ran into one. It was a uh, Polish uh, church and uh, everybody in the church, including the preacher, speaks English. But the services are in Polish. Why? Because it's comfortable for them. It's not that it's necessary, but that's one of the reasons why they go. There are other churches that are uh, almost like a trade union. I know of a church, heard of a church in Manhattan. If you're trying to get into acting or any of that thing, you show up at such and such a church and all of the people that are in the trade that are quote-unquote Christian are there and you can make your connections and network and all of those things. Uh, I hope you would agree with me that those are pretty poor reasons for going to church. That the reason we're here this morning is to prepare ourselves for eternity. Amen? Prepare ourselves to meet our Savior. And in the story that surrounds the verse that I want us to look at, we had Paul and Silas in the city of Philippi. Uh, they had finally refused the devil's advertising. If you know the whole story, the demon-possessed woman was following them. And, and uh, uh, Paul put an end to that. And because there was money involved, they were thrown in prison and they were beating, beaten and they sang songs to God because you know what? God is bigger than any circumstance we find ourselves in. Amen? They knew that God was still in charge and God sent an earthquake that night and opened the prison doors and the chains fell off. I'll tell you what, that'd have to be a pretty serious earthquake to open prison doors and to knock the shackles off of the prisoners. And the jailer, having seen what was happening, prepared to commit suicide. Why? Because, well, the Romans had this neat little thing. If you were the jailer and one of your prisoners escaped, you just served their sentence for them. Everybody in the prison was out. He knew his, if they had all escaped, his life was over. So he might as well just get it over with quickly than waiting a long time. And while he was preparing, he drew his sword. Now Paul and Silas, if you read the story, was cast into the innermost part of the prison, yet they were still able to hear what was happening it wasn't that big of a prison. I want you to understand that, that they heard him preparing to kill himself and they called out, do thyself no harm for we are all here. Now somehow that touched the jailer's heart. Do you know how many people actually cared about the jailer in the city of Philippi? Uh, nobody. He was just one of those necessary people, so like the hangman. How many of you would like to invite the executioner over for dinner? Uh, I mean, uh, that's one of the reasons why in ancient England and different places they would try to keep the uh, identity of the executioner uh, a secret so that nobody would know who he was so that... He could enjoy a normal life all except for what he did for a living. Uh, amen. And the simple truth was nobody liked the jailer. 
But somebody cared about him. Somebody he had helped treat improperly. Somebody he had heaped abuse on as was part of his duty. But this person called out of the darkness and said, do thyself no harm. I want you to take a moment. And do you remember when somebody cared enough about you to give you the gospel? Amen? Circumstances change. But what really happens doesn't. I've had people give testimony. Well, nobody did anything for me. I mean, I just picked up this little gospel track here and uh, somebody took time to print it. Somebody took time and effort to place it. God and the Holy Spirit of God superintended so that you would get it. You know what? Somebody did care about you to get you the gospel no matter how you got it. Amen? And so this man got the gospel and he immediately began to realize there was something different about these men. Maybe he had heard their message during the week. We don't know. But he asked the right question. He said, what must I do to be saved? And I can't tell you how many people have said, Pastor, that's just too simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It's just too simple. Uh, uh, why, why can't it be more complicated? Well, it, God made it so simple so that uh, not to be rude this morning, so that you would not misunderstand. Amen? Uh, so that we as human beings would not have an opportunity to misunderstand what was being said. But I want to challenge you that it's become complicated today to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Has it not? We, we live in a world where... The word truth really doesn't mean anything anymore. Because how many of you have ever been up and listened to late night radio in New York City? It's a bunch of advertisements. I'm telling you the truth. This uh, vitamin infusion will make you lose weight and make you be younger and make you... Does that stuff work? I mean, I've heard of a few people say, well, it makes me feel a little better. Yeah, well, a lot of things will make you feel a little better, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's good for you. Um, the simple truth is everybody is out there hawking what they call the truth. The best way I know how to put it, it's hard to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today because... We, in our great advance of thinking and intellectualism, allow for multiple lines of truth. You see, my mom made it real simple. If I wasn't telling the truth, uh, I was lying. And if I was lying, there were bad things that were going to happen to me. I mean, there were things you could get away with once in a while around our house, but that was one that you just could not get away with. I mean, it brought the wrath of both of my parents in no uncertain terms, and things were done to make it understood that if you did anything else in that house, you weren't going to tell a lie again. And my parents didn't allow lawyerism. Do you know what that is? That's where you keep talking about the truth until even its own mother couldn't recognize it. Amen. Uh, that's what we have people doing today is they keep talking around the truth and about the truth and everybody's telling the truth. I mean, nobody would tell a lie today. But let me explain something to you. If something is true, the opposite is wrong. If something is true, 
then what doesn't match that thing that is true is untrue. Two plus two equals what? Two plus two equals four. Are you sure about that? You're pretty, pretty sure that two plus two equals four. Could we say that is truth? So if I got in this pulpit and said two plus two equals five, would you believe me? I used to know it, and one of these days I'm going to find it again. There's an algebraic equation that actually makes 2 plus 2 equal 5. It's a lie. <laughs> but by the time I was done, you would think I was telling you the truth. And that's what the world does. And that's what makes it hard to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, when this Philippian jailer heard believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, he didn't have to ask which one. You know, today you have to be careful. I remember when I was a kid growing up in Maryland, in the state of Maryland, if you went into any kind of establishment or into one of the little uh, convenience stores and you said, I want a Coke, the first question is, what kind? So what do you mean, what kind? Well, do you want an orange Coke or ginger ale Coke? Or A Coke was a blank, generic term for anything that was in a bottle and fizzed. And so then you had to define what kind you wanted. And uh, then they would give you something that wasn't a Coke if you didn't ask specifically for one. I'll take a root beer Coke. There's no such thing. Uh, but that's just the way people communicated. Today, people say, believe on the Lord Jesus. And you say, which one? Do you believe in the Jesus who needs his mother to give him love because he doesn't have any? There's actually a, a religion that teaches a Jesus like that, that he's very austere, that he's the one that wants to punish you. And if it weren't for his mother pleading on your behalf, he wouldn't love you. That's the Catholic Jesus. Now, they wouldn't put it in those words because it would be too easy to recognize the difference. But that's what they talk about. You have the Jesus whose brother is the devil. Now, if Jesus has a brother, uh, then he can't be what the Bible says he is. By the way, that's the Mormon Jesus. Because they believe that God had many wives and Jesus was one of his sons through one of his wife and devil was one of his sons through the other one of his life, wives. Excuse me. Could I challenge you that that Jesus could not be the same one that's in the Bible? Would anybody argue with me about that? There's another Jesus out there that looks at everybody and understands that everybody's got problems with sin and nobody can be perfect like he was and so he'll just let everybody into heaven. That's the Protestant Jesus. See, I'm not going to just pick on one religion this morning. There's a religion out there that teaches that Jesus was the greatest teacher, the greatest prophet of God, the greatest of everything but all he was was a man, and nothing in the New Testament is true about Jesus. That's the Islamic Jesus. You see, what we do is we have people that get up and say and actually believe, well, we're all the children of God, and we all believe in the same God. That, my friends, is a lie. We do not believe in the same God because the characteristics do not allow for it to be the same person. You see, the Jesus of the Bible is the very God of gods. Yes, he was born of the Virgin Mary. He was brought into uh, flesh by uh, the work of the Holy Spirit of God. And Mary was the 
vessel through which that was accomplished. But she did not become deity. She is not God. She is not to be worshipped. The God of the Bible, Jesus said, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. But Paul tells us in the book of Romans, But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. His love for us exceeds so far. God does not need help loving you, my friend. He is love. The Jesus of the Bible is not a created being, as the Jehovah's Witness say. He is God. Read John chapter 3. He says, No one has ascended, but he that is descended, which is the Son of Man, which is in heaven. He made the statement that while I'm here on earth, I am in heaven at the same time. Only God could make that statement. You see, the Philippian jailer didn't have to ask which kind of Jesus to believe in, whether it was the Seventh-day Jesus or the Catholic or the Orthodox or the Islamic or the uh, Pentecostal or the whatever. There was only one Jesus that was being taught about in his day. And when he was to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, he understood that it meant that he had to give up everything else he had to believe in. I use this illustration often in trying to help people understand this point. How many of you have ever seen a guy or a lady or someone walk a tightrope way way up in the air? You ever, you've seen that, right? You can raise your hands. It's okay. Not a trick question. I'm not playing games. How many of you have seen more than one person walk on one rope? I mean, uh, I, I read this story years ago about the Walenda family. They used to have eight and ten people build a human pyramid on one rope at one time. It was the most amazing feat that was ever done. The only problem was one of them slipped and several of them died in a major accident. It was a terrible, terrible thing. But I'll tell you one thing you have never, ever seen. You've never seen one person walking on two ropes. Boy, it got quiet real quick. You say, well, what's the difference? Well, you can concentrate. I don't have it, by the way. Uh, somebody said, can you walk on a tightrope? No, I can't walk on a balance beam. I have problems walking on the floor sometimes. Uh, I'll just stay uh, Tierra firma here. But, uh, I mean, they have people that can ride bicycles and do flips and somersaults and, and put a balance beam out and build a pyramid all on one wire. But you can't do it on two. Because the wires move differently and your mind can't comprehend. The human body can't do it. Now they'll invent somebody that'll do it on two lines, right? Because I said that, right? No. The simple truth of the matter is we think we can believe in alternate lines of truth and be okay. And the And the truth is, you can think that, yes, but it's not true. You can only believe in one thing. Let me illustrate at this point using religion. If you're going to stand before God and ask him why, and God asks you the question, why should I get into heaven? What are you going to use in your life to answer that question? Say, well, um, I went to church. That's not going to get you very far. Everybody goes to church. There are all kinds of churches out there that do all kinds of of wicked things. Uh, Just going to church, 
So, but, but I go to the right kind of church. I go to the church that teaches the Bible. Okay, well, that's a good step. But that doesn't get you salvation. We'll, we'll get to where the church comes in in a few moments. You see, these men said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. I got into an argument. I'm trying to finish this point here, the illustration here. I got into an argument several years ago and I, uh, uh, with a lady, and, and, and she began going back and forth. I said, well, who forgives your sins? And she said, well, I go to the priest, and I confess my sins, and he forgives my sins. I said, well, he's a human being, right? She said, well, yes, he is. I said, who gives him authority to forgive your sins when he has his own sins? Oh, that's easy. The bishop above him does that. Oh, okay, well, let's just take it a step further. The bishop gives him authority to forgive sins, but is the bishop a human being? Well, yes. Does the bishop have sin? Well, yes, he does. But who gives him? Well, the cardinal gives him authority. Okay, well... Do you know where we're going with this thing? I said, let's take it a step up. Is the cardinal a human being? Yes. Does the cardinal have sin that belongs to him? Well, yes. So what does he do with his sin? Well, the Pope gives him permission. I said, okay, let's take it a step further here. Is the Pope a human being? Uh had to think about that one a minute. I said, well, yeah, he is. In fact, if you read teaching, they'll tell you that most popes have to go to purgatory as long or longer than other people so they can get to heaven. Oh, okay, well, the pope's a human being. Well, who gives him authority to forgive his sins? Well, God does. I said, well, you know, the Bible tells me that if I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, he will forgive my sins because he paid for them. That's the reason I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it comes an issue. What is your final authority? Where are you going to go? What are you really trusting in? We've had people that say, Pastor, I'm coming to your church. And I find out later that they've been going to midnight mass on Saturday or some other religious thing. I just want to make sure. Well, whatever it is that you do to make sure, that's what you really believe in. To put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, to believe in Jesus is to believe in him alone. That's what it means to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and let me just reiterate this. It's not just because somebody says, I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, means that they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, if we were to go out in the street and take a poll and stop ten uh, people and say, do you believe in Jesus? And I, I would say that even in New York City today, we would probably get a majority of people say, oh, I, I believe in Jesus. But when we say, do you believe in a Jesus that has the right to dictate how you behave during the week? Oh, wait a minute. No, I don't believe in that kind of Jesus. Uh, do you believe in a Jesus that has the right to tell you what kind of church you ought to go to. Oh, oh no, no, wait a minute, preacher. That's, that, that's too much. I don't believe in that kind of Jesus. So I, I want to challenge you that unless you believe in that kind of Jesus, you don't have the right one. Because he wasn't a teacher of many things. He was a teacher of one set of doctrines that belong to him. People have said, well, our church is the oldest church. And 
we, we believe only. And I said, well, where does the doctrine of your oldest church come from? Well, it's been developed through the ages and through the centuries and the millennia as the doctrine was thing. I said, so the people who developed the doctrine of your church have the right to change what's in the Bible. Oh, no, we don't. But we have the right to define it. Uh, excuse me. If you really believe what's in the Bible, why do you need somebody else's book to tell you what it says? Hello? I know this isn't new to any of our members, but it's something that we need to be reminded of. Salvation is believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not allowing for multiple lines of truth. It's not allowing for everybody to be right. It is believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Period. No ands, no ifs, no buts, no additions, no subtractions. To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ demands an unbelief in everything else. Say unbelief is not a word, but it does fit the sentence, does it not? It demands you to stop putting faith and trust and credence in anything that is not written down in this book called the Bible. You see, there is no such thing as multiple lines of truth. Everybody cannot be right. And to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I got into an argument one time several years back. You don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, John 3.16 says, For whosoever believeth in him, And if you can tell me a difference between believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, you got the wrong dictionary, my friend. Because to believe in him is to believe on him. The terms are interchangeable. It's the resting place for your faith. That's how you get saved, is by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do I believe on him and him exclusively? Every other religion in the world can take you to a cemetery and to a grave. And that's where their leader's body or remains is. Only the Bible takes you to a grave that is empty because Jesus died and rose again from the dead. Now, Jesus didn't die and raise again from the dead to put you under the same tyranny that the Jewish people were under from the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and the priests and the taxes and all of these things that were going on to keep the temple. See, when a Jewish person got saved, he was not despising his, the temple or turning his back on those things, what he was doing was he was embracing the reality for which those things stood. And he was becoming free from the 300 regulations that the Pharisees had come with, come up with on how to handle Egyptian cucumbers. And all of the traditions that they had developed that actually negated many things that were in the law. Jesus' sharpest condemnations were for the Pharisees because they, through their tradition, made the law of God null and void. You see, you cannot embrace the traditions of men and the truth of God at the same time. That's why Jesus said, If you'll know the Son, ye shall be what? Free indeed. The jailer had to give up his idolatry and his worship of the emperor. 
maybe not in his lifetime, but certainly soon after, the emperor got a hold of this thing and he began executing Roman soldiers who refused to sacrifice to the emperor as a god. Would the Philippian jailer who had believed on the Lord Jesus Christ be able also to offer incense to the emperor as a god? If he was believing in Jesus as his God, the only God, he could not do that. And history is full of of the Roman soldiers who were killed because they believed in Jesus Christ and would not worship their emperor as a God. Tell you what, it's pretty simple. To believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's fairly complicated to unbelieve in the church and in religion and in good works and in the traditions of men and in all of the other things that make us feel like we've believed on the Lord Jesus Christ when we really haven't. They they blur the lines, use all of the same words... But if nothing changes, did you really believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, it says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Now, this idea of being saved means that you are no longer in jeopardy. How many of you are good, excellent swimmers today. I mean, you can swim upstream with a strong current and just really good. I am not in that number. I can do an excellent imitation of a stone, right to the bottom. I can stay afloat for limited periods of time as long as I can stand up when I'm tired of trying to stay afloat. Amen? I'm not a good swimmer. And if I were to be out in a, in a place where I was dependent upon my swimming ability to stay alive, I, I just don't know that I would be alive very long. That's why when I'm on a little boat, I always put on one of those life jackets. You know what? I can swim all day in a life jacket because it's doing the work. All I have to do is paddle in the right direction, right? Uh, that's not a problem. Being saved means you're no longer in jeopardy. Now, we are talking a great deal more jeopardy than just you losing your physical life. We're talking about a jeopardy uh, of the eternal judgment of God in a place called hell. Now, how can being saved from eternal judgment no longer in jeopardy of the wrath of God, not affect the way I live. You see, you can't... You, you, it cannot happen. I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And we're just going to look at a few verses here. Verse, Paul is writing here. And he's explaining to the Corinthians that he wrote this letter. He condemned them for wrong behavior, sinful behavior, uh, unsaved behavior in the church. And they made things right. And, And verse 10 says, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold, this selfsame thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge in all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. 
Now, Paul is saying, listen, godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. Now, that's not an incredibly difficult verse. We know that the sorrow of this world, that just being sorry for what you've done, doesn't change anything. Then what makes godly sorrow different from worldly sorrow? Well, worldly sorrow says, I'm sorry. I I feel bad about what I've done wrong. Godly sorrow says, I understand that God, too, feels bad about the wrong that I have done. In fact, he felt so poorly about it that he sent his son, Jesus, to pay the price for the sins I committed. Do you see the difference between God's sorrow and worldly sorrow? See, worldly sorrow is feeling bad, but there's nothing I can do. How many times have you said, Listen, I'm sorry, I was wrong. There's nothing I can do about it. Well, that's worldly sorrow. Doesn't get you very far. My kids, Dad, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do it. Well, okay, you, may, you were born that way, amen? You're born sorry, but that's not going to change this. What we need is some godly sorrow. God was sorry enough about my sins that he did something about them. By the way, is there anyone or anything else that can do anything about your sins, my friend? Uh, No. Only God can deal with the issue of sin. That's why we need his sorrow. We need to understand that his sorrow sent Christ to the cross to pay the price for my sins, but look at that next verse. He sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you. How many of you are more careful about what you do since you got saved? That ought to be everybody, amen? You know why? Because Godly sorrow that worketh repentance to salvation. Now that I'm saved, it changes the way that I look at things. I am careful about things that I didn't used to be careful about. It says the next one is a clearing of yourself. How do I clear myself? I take my sins that I know about And I bring them to God and I name them and I confess them and I ask him to forgive me for them. Not because of my sorrow or my penance or what I'm going to do. But because Jesus already paid for them on Calvary's cross. Can you say amen to that? But what else does it do? A clearing of yourself? Indignation is the next. How many of you ever get upset at yourself for doing wrong? You know what? That's the work of the Holy Spirit of God based on godly sorrow and biblical repentance. What fear. Now that you understand God's judgment, guess what? We're really afraid, but we trust in God's love. Amen? Yea, what vehement desire. After you're saved, you ought to want to do right. And when you don't, we got to go back and get this thing straightened out so that this godly sorrow, which leads unto repentance to salvation, can continue doing its work in our daily life and give us that desire that makes us do what we ought to do. I mean, I think if you want a good example of vehement desire, look at Brother Newberger, all that he has gone through, he and his little wife and family, so that they can hold their first service 
And we don't even have a, a, a regular meeting place for next Sunday yet, but we're going to see what the Lord is going to do. Amen? You see, what zeal, yea, what revenge. And revenge is one of those words that we think of in a negative and an evil connotation. But revenge really means to make things right. It means to even the score. And if we really understand this correctly... God has forgiven me for more than I can ever repay him for. And if I'm going to revenge the Lord, it means I'm going to live for him in earnest, not to pay him back for what he's done, but to say thank you. Amen? You see... This idea of repentance, of godly sorrow that leads to repentance to salvation. Guess what? It's something that doesn't stop on Monday. It's something that doesn't stop when you've been saved for 20 years or 30 years or 100 years. If you should live that long, it's something that keeps working in you. This idea of being saved means that you're saved forever from the wrath of God by the love of God. And that knowledge and that work in your life is going to make these other things happen. And if they're not happening, maybe it's because you don't have Bible salvation. You see, you don't need to get baptized to be saved. It has nothing to do with your salvation. But let me ask you a question. If you really love God and you're really trusting in Him to save you, then why won't you surrender to Him about baptism? It's just that simple. It was a thing that was understood. If you are saved and you're trusting God to take your eternal soul to heaven, why won't you surrender and serve God through a local church? One that teaches the Bible. If you're saved and you're loving God and you're thankful that he saved you for all eternity... Why won't you go out and invite somebody else to find the same salvation that he's given you? You see, this thing called being saved means it's going to change some things. They had to repent of their sin. They had to be cleaned out inside. They had to start being careful about things they had to get upset about their own sin, not somebody else's, and fear God for the results of that sin, yet love Him. And that love for God, for saving us from our sin, gives us a zeal and a desire to do what's right, to revenge or live for God more than I live for the devil and live for myself. Salvation changes you. Amen? And by the way, that verse says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. You know what Paul was saying? I've heard people say, well, it says, and thy house, so that means everybody in my house is going to get saved. No, it does not. What it means is everybody in your house who will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ can get saved the same way you did. There are no guarantees that anyone is going to get saved because every person must make their own choice. Amen? You see, we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ because we do not believe there are multiple lines of truth out there. 
We do not believe all the roads lead to heaven and that everybody believes in God. We believe that Jesus was a unique person that lived on this earth, God incarnate, and that putting your faith and trust in him alone is what saves you. We believe that when he saves you, that your belief in the Lord Jesus Christ that saved you is going to keep going and it's going to change. (coughs) Excuse me. It's going to change the way that you live. It cannot. A belief in Jesus Christ cannot. This is double negative here. Cannot not change your life. Your belief cannot non-affect action. Lots of no words today. But the word effect means to change behavior. To make something happen. Your belief will affect the way you live. It will change what you do and what you understand. And if it doesn't, then I want to challenge you that you don't have the kind of belief that the Bible says or that your belief is not in the Jesus of the Scriptures. And now I want to preach just one last point there. If you look at that verse, let's go back to Acts 16.31. Acts chapter 16, verse 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. Is there a period there in your Bible? There, there is in mine. You know what that means? That means that's the end of the sentence. That means there's nothing left to add or to, to put in. There's no uh, other thought that needs to be connected to this. But see, here's part of our problem. Is we believe that we can pray this prayer and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ... And everything's just going to be perfect from here on out. Now, that's the way it happens in the fairy tales. And they lived happily ever after. But let me tell you something. Life is full of unhappy experiences, is it not? How many of you would like to live a life without stress? Oh, one thing... Uh, uh, could I explain something to you? There is a certain amount of stress that you need in your life or you will fall apart as a human being. There, there's just a certain amount of it that you have to have. You say, but do I have to have everything that I do have? Well, probably not. But And many times we add to the stress in our lives, do we not? But I want you to turn with me to the book of Luke chapter 9 and and I'll try to finish on time this morning. In verse 26 it says, For whosoever shall be ashamed of me of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come into his own glory and in his fathers and of the holy angels. But I tell you of a truth, I'm sorry, um, verse 22. I started reading the last verse. Uh, The Son of Man, Jesus is talking to them, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised the third day. And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, And take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. 
For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be a castaway? For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come into his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. Now, here's what Jesus is saying. He says, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be tortured. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be killed. And then I'm going to rise again the third day. If you're going to follow me, I want you to take up your cross daily and try to follow me. Now, you see, if you try to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you will lose your life, you will save it. Now, trying to illustrate this, uh, many years ago, before we were married, I was in a boat about uh, 20 miles off the Florida Keys, and we were fishing in uh, what was only probably about 30 or 40 feet of water, and the fish weren't biting, and so we all decided to go for a swim. And I hit a cold spot, and I started going down. And I managed to get up and get a breath. And before I knew it, I went down again and I started getting scared. Fortunately for me, there was a friend with me in the water. And he swam over next to me. And it's amazing the things you think in these few seconds. Because I'd heard many stories of people who actually drowned the person who was trying to save them. And I said, if Scott's going to pull me up, and I just put my arms down beside me, and I started going down. And then I felt his arm wrap around mine, my, my uh, chest, and start pulling me back to the boat. I'll tell you what. If I had struggled and pushed him away or tried to grab a hold of him, there may have been two of us at the bottom of the water but I just stopped swimming because I wasn't doing any good anyway. And I let him take me back to the boat. And you know what? Both of us are alive and serving the Lord today. You see, you can't save yourself. And you can't help Jesus save you. You've got to let him do the saving. If he is doing the saving, guess what? There's nothing left for you to do except say thank you. Amen? Now, we understand that salvation is an event that happens in a moment of time And when Jesus saves you, he saves you eternally. Amen? But I still have to live today. And if Jesus doesn't come back or call me home, tomorrow and the next day. And I've said this so many times and I I really want you to grab a hold of this. You live for Jesus the same way you got saved, my friend. You stop struggling and trying to please him and let him give you what it takes to serve him that day. If you have somebody that you just can't put up with, somebody that just gets under your skin, someone that just really gets you going, there's only one way to deal with that. you got to stop taking care of it and try to let the Lord take care of it. Amen? You've got to stop trying to save your life and let the Lord do the saving. 
Amen? You got something you're struggling with. You just can't get the victory over. Why don't you stop trying to get the victory? I was trying to stay afloat. You know what? I was doing a lousy job. In fact, if I hadn't stopped struggling, maybe Scott would have never gotten close enough to take me back to the side of the boat. But I'll tell you what, I remember thinking, if he's going to save me, i got to stop swimming. That is the scariest 30 seconds, 10 seconds of my life. But I'll tell you what, I'm glad God gave me the presence of mind to do it. And it's an illustration. Why do we struggle so hard? It's because we're trying to do things that belongs to God. I don't think Anita will get too upset with me. She said, Pastor, I was deathly afraid of water. She got baptized last Sunday morning. And she said, I was just terrified. Not this Anita. Sorry. And afterwards, I saw her Sunday night. And I said, are you okay? She said, Pastor, after you preached on fear, how could I be afraid of water? I said, well, I didn't preach that for you. She says, I know, I know, I know. But the simple truth of the matter is, the reason we struggle so much is because we're trying to save ourselves. Jesus said, if you're going to save your life, you've got to lose it. That's what he means. You stop trying, just like you got saved. You stop trying to save yourself. You didn't believe in a generic Jesus or one of the many that were there. You believed in the Jesus of the Bible, the one who is God, who was born and became human flesh through the instrument of of Mary. But it didn't make her God. She's just a human being like the rest of us. And he died on the cross to pay the price for my sins and rose again the third day. I believe in the Jesus of the Bible. He saved me. Well, guess what? That repentance that saved me didn't stop working the day I got saved. It's still working all of these years later. It's making me careful. When I sin, it makes me do house cleaning and take my sin to God and confess it to Him. What clearing of yourselves. It makes me upset about my sin. It gives me a desire to serve God and to live for Him on a daily basis because there's nothing more that can be added when God saves me. He saves me to live for Him and so I lose my life. I stop making my life choices. I'm glad I married the woman that God picked for me and not the one I wanted to pick. He's got a lot better taste than I do. I'm glad I'm serving God where he wants me to be and not doing the things that I wanted to do with my life. I gave up those things as a young boy. And I said, I'll be a preacher wherever you want me to be. And this is where the Lord wants me to be. You say, well, that's good for you. But, you know, God has a plan for every person's life that gets saved. He's got things he wants you to do, but you got to do it his way. You got to get saved his way and you got to live your life his way. The first step of obedience, baptism. Second step, church membership. Actually, they happen right same time here. And you serve the Lord through his church. It's just that simple. And we struggle together till Jesus comes back to get us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I come before you this morning. Lord, this verse, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy house. Lord, I don't come into the pulpit with a list of people in mind to preach a sermon to. 
Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit would have freedom to apply this message. As I know, there are many who are saved that are just struggling so hard with life and all of its circumstances. And all they need to do is just stop struggling and let you keep them in the way. Lord, I pray for those that are trying by good works or by church attendance or by so many things to get saved, that today they would stop struggling for their salvation and simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and nothing else. Lord, we pray the Holy Spirit would have freedom to work in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.